Wash me and I will be. Jim, it looks like you and Amy were right on the same page this morning. Praise the Lord. Hey, it's good to be back together with you. Uh, Lynchburg did its best to combat global warming last week, and so we had to, had to pause church temporarily. And, uh, but it's good to be back together to study the words of the Lord together. So I'd like you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. While you're doing that, if you have little ones through, age, through grade 6, and you'd like them to be in an age-appropriate service, they can leave at this point. Have all the teachers and the students out, and then you can pick them up in their classrooms at the conclusion of our service. First Corinthians chapter 4, we are back together in God's plan for a healthy church. Uh, study through the books of First and Second Corinthians, in particular, unity and leaders, as Paul brings these things to the forefront as we begin chapter 4, 1 Corinthians. Paul's going to make this transition as uh, he revisits this undercurrent in Corinth of preferences. And Paul, of all the topics that he could have taken on at the beginning, takes on this topic of unity. It is God's desire that the church be unified. It is not his desire there be factions. And so that was the problem in Corinth. And so Paul takes that one on first, uh, because once those things are corrected, many other things come in line. And so Paul begins as his focus, this whole idea of factions in the church, and that's been our study as we've worked our way through the first three verses of 1 Corinthians. And then Paul revisits this undercurrent of preferences here as he's talked about a lot of different things up to this point, about the wisdom, uh, foolishness of the wisdom of men, about uh, immature believers who long time in the faith yet don't understand what the Word says. And Paul has to take on all these things. And so then he takes on this undercurrent here at Corinth, uh, preferences between the men who had pastored there. Uh, adding Peter to the mix as well, no doubt, from those who had come from Jerusalem to be there in Corinth. So uh, Paul takes that on. It was his first thing that he talked about shortly after he gave the benefits of being a believer. So in 1 Corinthians 1.12, Paul says, I've heard this is going on in the church. Some of you are saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I of Cephas, I of Christ. In particular, this is his focus. And so I remind you of that because these are three godly men, yet the church is picking between them and uh, developing some following amongst them, and that type of evaluation by the church in Corinth is going to be Paul's focus. Because uh, by the nature uh, of their worldly wise and fleshly evaluation, they were no doubt focused incorrectly on the wrong things. And so Paul, after he lays all this foundation, is going to give them some correct evaluation principles. It's been a common habit of the church all the way up through the modern age, a game that the church plays, uh, certainly about evaluating people by worldly principles and by worldly perspective. Uh, Corinth, encouraged by a few, no doubt, immature, fleshly, worldly-wise people, made up all kinds of criteria by which to evaluate Paul and those that have followed him. It's the same in the modern church, and no one really knows what the criteria really is. It's just whatever happens to fit uh, that uh, particular time and place, whatever the standard may be. It just uh, becomes a matter of evaluation based on whether they appeal to you or not, whether or not they're doing what you would do. Uh, whether they preach like you would preach, or whether they're popular or not popular, or their social status, or any number of personal reasons, these become the standards whereby uh, men who pastor are evaluated. And so Paul and Apollos and Peter were all being ranked in the minds of the church because some were picking out things that they didn't like about one or more of them, uh, choosing what they liked or what fit them best or what they were used to. And those kinds of things, those evaluations, both then and now, are extremely contagious. And so Paul wants to reset their thinking as they begin to evaluate those that are uh, in 
the ministry. And they come, no doubt, uh, all those comments, uh, whether they like it or not, or whether it fits them best, they, they come couched in spiritual vocabulary. I put that in quotations because it's not either spiritual or wise or any other of those things. Uh, it is um, based in the wisdom of men. It's the James 3 type of wisdom. Uh, it's not spiritual. It doesn't come from heavenly wisdom. And so Paul wants to reset all this thinking and say, okay, if you're going to evaluate, here's what you need to do. So Paul knows they're immature, you know, or they wouldn't have the problem to begin with, uh, and he knows that they don't know how to evaluate correctly, so he's going to give them some guidelines. And in the first five verses, he's going to give some instruction in four different areas. And those are the four. Uh, the first one we saw last time we were together, he gives them the distinctiveness of a minister, uh, and then he's going to give them some of the characteristics of a minister. He's going to give them the outlook of a minister or, or his own attitude as it relates to the ministry. And then he's going to give them uh, the true appraisal of a minister. And those are the ways that we can grab onto the passage by handholds and kind of work our way through. Now, I'd like you to, if you would, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 6. I'm going to read out of the New American Standard. You can find that in the chair in front of you, or you can read in your copy, whatever translation that may be. And I'll give you some verse cues, and we can stay together. And I'm including verse 6 here, even though it's a transitional verse to the next uh, real topic that we're going to grab a hold of, just because it gives us and kind of firms up our understanding of Paul's attempt to correct some incorrect thinking. And you'll see that as we read it. Uh, so look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. It's going to start this way, let a man regard. Okay, so here we go. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Verse 2. Uh, in this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. Verse 3, but to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. Verse 4, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Verse 5, therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. Now mark this, verse 6, now these things, brethren, so Paul's kind of making a transition, but he's summing this up. These things I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sake. So obviously, uh, the way we're headed is the correct way. Paul is taking uh, and putting as a topic his own ministry, Apollos' ministry, Peter's ministry. Uh, I've, I've applied this to myself and Apollos for your sake, so that in us uh, you may learn not to exceed what is written. In other words, you only say, as we've said over and over again, you only say what the scriptures say, uh, they're the only, uh, we're only to use the language, that criteria that scriptures give, in other words, so don't exceed what's written, so that no one of you will become arrogant on behalf of one against another. So in other words, Paul says, I'm writing this to you, understand I'm using myself as an example, so you can learn this very valuable lesson about appraising those who are ministering, okay? Now Paul's point to start with, as it relates to initially to these three guys who pastored, Paul, Apollos, and Peter, and every other pastor, as it moves out, is really just knowing who the minister is, who the pastor is, is really enough to create the proper attitude towards him. Now, we saw this uh, last time, so just as a review, because it's been two weeks since we've been in. But 1 Corinthians 4.1, let a man, he says, regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And we saw there are really three key words in that one verse. We looked at each of those in turn last time, so I'll just sum them up. Uh, that word regard, logizomai, present, middle, imperative. If Paul is going to give a direct command to the church to do something, it's going to be in that uh, case tense and voice. 
Paul says to the church, this is required of you. Listen, this is how you used to think, the way you've been thinking, whatever criteria you've used before, this is not the way you're supposed to do it. Start thinking this way. He says, I'm going to give you the distinctiveness of one who leads the church. So from now on, he says, regard them this way. Which way? Next key word, servants of Christ. Huperetes, it's a noun, a Greek noun, very, literally means under rower. We looked at this last time at length. Uh, it's uh, not a lot of dignity in the term. Someone who serves below deck, a galley slave, if you will. Uh, regard those who serve the church as a minister as servants of Christ. That's the first distinction of those who serve in that position. Now you notice that Paul describes himself and Apollos and Peter and every other man who has or is serving in the position of pastor as a servant of Christ first. There's a lot of talk in the church, particularly modern church, about serving the people. And that's important. And it certainly falls in line there. But I think the right balance there is, is when the pastor serves Christ, he's going to best serve his people. And conversely, when he's more worried about what his people want him to do, uh, he's not perhaps going to be serving Christ very well. Okay? So very important. The word is how the apostles thought of themselves. And we cross-reference that. I won't look at every cross-reference, but Luke 1, 1 and 2, I think is significant, uh, where he says, he, Luke calls them, we are servants of the word. And that even defines it better, I think. Uh, there's that same word, under rower, again. It defines even better for those who serve as pastors. Why? Because to serve Christ is to obey his word. Uh, you can't serve him without serving his word, for his word is the revelation of his will. And so uh, he commands, uh, his commands are all there. And so you are a servant, an under rower of the word of Christ. So when Jesus called Paul on the Damascus Road, that's exactly the word he used for Paul, according to Paul in uh, Acts 26, 16. We looked at this last time. He says, I've appeared to you to appoint you, this is Christ speaking to Paul, a minister, huperetes, and a witness, a martus. Both of those things, he said, Paul would be. And Paul uses that word here in uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, this letter to them, to refer to himself and Apollos and Peter and on out to every pastor who's come along since that time. Now, Paul says to them, whenever you're tempted to rank ministers or whenever you want to play the game of figuring out what you're going to use as criteria, judge them and remember that they are slaves of Christ. That's your first criteria, okay? And Paul says that's how you're supposed to think. And so you get the perspective. And I think it's important as you think about under rower or a, a galley slave, uh, nobody gets glory for doing what they're told to do, all right? If the minister is a galley slave of Christ, you don't get glory for being a galley slave of Christ. You just get in trouble for not doing it, Okay? So a man who preaches because God has called him isn't worthy of any special honor from God because he's God's or Christ's under rower. It's just that uh, he's just worthy of dishonor if he doesn't. And we're going to see that more clearly in 1 Corinthians 9 when we get there. And Paul really takes this and bring, comes back to this very important point. Now the third key word here in this first verse is also very important. It's the second word used to describe the distinctiveness of a minister. And we see it right there at the end of verse 1. Let a man regard us in this manner... Uh, as servants, under rowers, galley slaves of Christ, and stewards of the mysteries of God. Oikonomos. Oikos is house, nomos is manager or manage. So in the New Testament times, uh, the word is the word for the manager of a household or of household affairs. We saw last time that could be a person who uh, was promoted to this position as a slave. It could be a free man hired to do it. Uh, but either way, it was a responsibility that he had. Paul says, if you're going to regard us, if you're going to look at us and, and have some uh, criteria, then do it this way, under roar of Christ and a steward of the mysteries of God. Now, we saw that in general. All believers are stewards. 1 Peter 4.10, we looked at this last time, so I won't look at it again at length, or have you even looked there. You can mark it down in your notes if you want to go back. Uh, each one, Paul says, in, or, uh, Peter says in 1 Peter 4.10, each one has received a special gift. Employ it in serving 
that's the word for deacon, or where we get our word for the office. Serving, here it means attending to, appoint, attend to one another uh, as good stewards, oikonomos, of what? Of the manifold grace of God. And so, in a sense, every believer is a steward. Every believer has had God's resources deposited in them in the form of spiritual gifts. And so, as they use those spiritual gifts to serve the church, to to attend to, if you will, the church, which is where we get our word deacon, attending to, serving the needs of the church, particularly in a service form. God has deposited in you resources in the form of spiritual gifts. When you use your spiritual gifts in the church to attend to one another, you are being a good steward. And so, in, in a sense, everyone in the church has to be a steward because everyone has spiritual gifts and everyone has a place to serve to attend to the needs of the church. But in particular, Paul tells the Corinthians, when they're putting together criteria, to evaluate the pastor of the church, they're to put away their own criteria based on the wisdom of men and uh, immature thinking and use God's criteria. criteria. So first two things, under roar of Christ, a manager of the goods God wants to dispense uh, to the house they are to take care of. And now, what are God's goods? What are they to dispense? Very important point. Let a man regard us in this manner, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And so they have to be a good steward of the mysteries of God. And that word is for something that was hidden and now revealed. It speaks to God's revelation. Uh, the gospel was a mystery now revealed to unbelievers, Matthew 13, 11. Uh, the the um, uh, Israel grafted out temporarily and then in the future grafted back in, according to Romans eleven twenty five, was a mystery God revealed. Uh, the, the church was a mystery, according to Colossians 1, 24 through 26. Uh, the fact that not everyone's going to die, but some are going to be raptured and taken, uh, that was a mystery now revealed according to 1 Corinthians 15, 51. And you can go on and on and on and on. The revelation of God, the mysteries of God, uh, what was hidden now revealed to those who believe. Those are the things he has to be a steward of. And that's what Paul is saying about the distinction of a minister. He is an underroar of Christ, and he is the manager of the household of Christ. And God has deposited his word as resource, and Paul says, I, Apollos, Peter, and of course we just spread it on out to all who minister, are to take those resources and dispense them to the household. When I try to examine my ministry and I say what I know I'm supposed to do, it's really a simple thing. I simply say, God's called me to take the word, pass it out to his people. I've been entrusted with the resources of his word and I'm to administer him, that's it. All right? And I do that as a, as a galley slave of Christ. And the thing I want to do is, as I, we ended last time, is make sure I don't mess it up on the way. I just get it to you, if you will, uh, in the way that God intended it to be delivered. The hard stuff, uh, the joyful stuff, the teaching, the reproof, the correction, the instruction, the righteousness, uh, in righteousness, all that kind of thing from 2 Timothy 3.16 tells me what I have to give. That's just the whole counsel of God. As you work verse by verse, that's what you get. You get, you get uh, instruction, you get teaching, you get reproof, correction, all of those things. God's mysteries revealed to the church through his word. And that word is given so that you'll be adequate for every good work. Now, in Acts 20, verse 20, I put that on the screen because uh, Paul, as he's speaking and saying goodbye to those in Asia, he says this to them. He says, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house. Now, I put that up there for you to see this. How did he know what was profitable? Uh, how do I know what's profitable? Well, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 again, right? All scripture is inspired by God, and it is what? It's all profitable, isn't it? All scripture is, in, is 
uh, inspired by God. It's all profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness. Verse 17, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So as Paul's talking to Timothy, a young pastor who's beginning his ministry, he says, listen, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable. Paul says in Acts 20, 20, I didn't hesitate to give you anything that was profitable. What was that? The whole counsel of God. And I imagine Paul could condense that in and get that and make that happen. And the 18 months that he was with the, the Corinthians, they got the whole counsel. So they, had, they received it, whether or not they understood it or could still understand it was a different story. The absence of, of that particular thing, uh, teaching the whole counsel of God, the absence of that is why we have so many Christians that are spiritually malnourished. Because there are many under rowers who want it to be about them in the churches today. And many stewards who are not taking care to give out the word. They call it preaching the word, but it really is just entertainment. It's three points in a poem and a catchy story or two and maybe some attention-grabbing video and their own thoughts. That's really what it is. And if you take a sampling of, of uh, what's going on on TV there, you would see that very carefully and easily. Because it's easy to bend and twist the word of God into saying what you want to talk about. And that's really what happens uh, many times as you listen to people who say they're teaching the word. And so that's why Paul says in verse 2, and let's look at it, this is a characteristic of a pastor. Okay, we see the distinctiveness. He is a galley slave of Christ. He is a steward of the mysteries of God. Now let's look at the characteristic of a pastor. Look at verse 2. This is very important. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. So get this, Paul takes a look at his own ministry in verse 1 and he says, this is the ministry we have. When you're evaluating us, put away the human wisdom and all this uh, different criteria you might pull out of your head uh, and start here. I'm a galley slave of Christ. I'm, an un, uh, I'm a, a, a house steward of the things God wants to give to his house. And this next statement, which gives us a characteristic of minister, helps them to look at what's going on. In other words, if ministers, now get this now, this is super important. If ministers uh, are servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God, then their ministry is evaluated that way. Are they doing that? Are they trustworthy in that way? Are they a steward that's being trustworthy of what God has done and what he's told them to do? That's the issue. In this case, what case? The case of a steward giving out the resources God supplied through his word. That's the case. What case? Exactly what he just got through saying. You're a steward of the mysteries of God. And in that case, then, a steward is to be found trustworthy. In other words, catch this, beloved. If you want to evaluate it, he has to be doing this, being a good steward of the mysteries of God. He has to be doing that as his primary ministry unto Christ in order to be found faithful. Get it? That's Paul's point. That's the main thing. Listen, it doesn't say it's required of students that a man be found brilliant. Okay? It doesn't say it's a, that it, uh, in this case, it, moreover, it's required that a man be found educated or have a great personality or be entertaining. It doesn't say any of those things. Faithful. He wants a steward that you don't have to watch. That's the point. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus talks about this very thing. Great illustration. Look there, Luke 12, 35, will you? This is important, I think. Hold your finger here. We'll be back. This is really important because he uses the word a number of times, and we're going to see some men in just a minute in Colossians that actually illustrate that for us, okay? So if you're going to evaluate them, realize that they're an under or a galley slave of Christ. They're a steward of the mysteries of God. And if you really want to know if they're doing their job, how well do they do giving out the mysteries of God from his word? That's the thing, okay? Look at Luke 12, 35. 
Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Verse 36, be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Verse 37, blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you, he'll gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. Now that's pretty humbling, isn't it? Verse 38, whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. Verse 39, but be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. Verse 40, you too be ready. For the Son of Man is coming in an hour that you do not expect. Verse 41, Peter said, and this is the point that we want to get to, because this, this, the answer to this Peter's question is the illustration for us. Okay, so catch this. Peter says, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? Verse 42, and the Lord said, who then is the faithful and sensible steward? Oikonomos, all right, there it is. A steward, the house slave, the one who's taking care of the ministry. Whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time. So who's he talking to? To his disciples, those who are following him, those who are going to be leading, okay? That's the point. He's given you stuff to give, to, give out to the servants and, and distribute the food and all the kind of things that a house uh, steward did. Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he'll put him in charge of all his possessions. When you appoint a steward to, for your, ho your house, you wanted somebody who was trustworthy. That was Jesus' point to Peter's question. And as it relates to those in the pastorate, Paul says when you're playing this evaluation game, just make sure you're looking at this. How faithful to the word is he, both in the giving of it and applying it to the church. How faithful. Because that really is the measure. God isn't looking for brilliance or personality or popularity. He just wants you to be faithful to give the word out. Colossians 1.7, starting there, I can give you six guys just like this. And this is um, really great. You can look back at 1 Corinthians 4, or you can turn to Colossians 1.7 if you want. Um, but in Colossians 1.7, it's really a great, uh, a great passage. He says this. And listen for that common thread now as he describes these guys who are serving, okay? We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Verse 4. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. Verse 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. Verse 6. Which has come to you, just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth, verse 7, just as you learned it from Epaphras. Now, let's pause right there. What was Epaphras faithfully, faithful to do? Why is he even mentioned here? Beloved. He's mentioned because you previously heard in the word of truth the gospel which has come to you just as in all the world it also is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras. So what is Epaphras? He's a fellow bondservant and faithful, isn't he? Because that's what he was supposed to do. He's a steward. Is he doing it? It appears, because Paul addresses this church in Colossae and says, hey, you heard from this from Epaphras, and now you're doing it. And so he refers back to Epaphras as that faithful kind of steward. Our beloved fellow bondservant who is, that's what he says, faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. So Epaphras is one of those guys. You can jot that down in your notes. Epaphras is a great guy. 
he just did what he was supposed to do. Galley slave of Christ, uh, a uh, house servant of the mysteries of Christ, and he gave them out like he was supposed to, and it bore fruit. Now, Colossians 4, 7. There's four more right in a row. As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother, here it is, faithful servant, fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. There's another guy. If he's a faithful bondservant, then what, is he, what kind of guy is he? He's a guy that's being a good house servant, isn't he? Giving out the mysteries of God. So Paul says, hey, look at Tychicus. He's going to bring you some more information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances, and that he may encourage your hearts. Verse 9. And with him, Onesimus. What's the next word? Our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number. They will inform you about the whole situation here. Verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greeting. And also Barnabas' cousin Mark, about whom you uh, received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. So he just kind of lumps them all together, doesn't he? These guys are these fellow workers, these bond servants of mine. They're all faithful. They're all the guys that we would say doing what they're supposed to do. What are they doing? Giving out the word of Christ. A bondservant, being faithful to give it out, a steward of the mysteries. And then he says this important comment to Archippus, and it's in Colossians 4.17. I'll just skip over there. And I like this just because it gives you the other side, okay? It gives you a guy perhaps just beginning in his ministry or perhaps struggling a little bit, figuring out what he's supposed to do. And he says this, Say to Archippus, take heed of the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. I love that. It just means this, Archippus, be faithful. That's God's plan for your ministry. Just be faithful. Just take what I've given you, pass it out. I want to trust you with this. It's not that hard. You're a galley slave of Christ. You're a, a house steward to give out the mysteries of Christ. It's not that hard to do. Just take what I've given you and pass it out. That's what the Lord says to every minister. Just do that. He says, Parker, see the book? Pass it out, will you? You know, um, Will you teach people what it means? I'll give you the Holy Spirit. I'll give you the gift of teaching and of preaching. I'll give you a congregation. Give them food, would you? That's it. Not that complicated. And there can be people who are faithful. And beloved, they may not look like much in your eyes. And that's certainly how Corinth was evaluating Paul. In fact, we're going to read in 2 Corinthians 10.10, for they say about Paul, his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. Nice. So if they say that about Paul, who else are they going to say about every other minister who's ever preached, ever? 2 Corinthians 10, 18, Paul says to that, it's not he who commends himself that's approved, but he whom the Lord commends who's approved. But just because they may not be doing what you would do, and just because they may not be doing what someone else did, it doesn't mean they aren't raking an A-plus with God, okay? That's Paul's point. He looks at one thing, and so Paul tells the church, you look at that too. Paul wants them to know if they are faithful before God, that's the basis on which God honors them. Faithfulness to giving out the word, that's the measuring stick. And it's always been that way with the Lord. Look forward a little bit to 1 Corinthians 4.17, where you're at 4, 1 Corinthians 4.2, look at 4.17. It's a great passage. He says this, Paul says this, For this reason I have sent to you Timothy who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere 
in the church. He's my beloved and faithful child. He's going to come and pastor there, and you're going to listen to him. He's faithful to give out the word of Christ. That's the marker. It isn't anything new. God says, you know what I want out of you? I want you to hand this stuff out. I don't want to make sure, and, this, and just to illustrate it this way, I want to make sure it gets to the table the way it came out of the kitchen, okay? And don't mess it up and don't add any of your own ingredients along the way. That's all. You don't have to spruce it up, okay? You don't have to be creative and innovative. You just have to give it out like I gave it to you. That's what you have to do. And in as much as the minister is doing that, that is the evaluation, okay? Faithfulness is a steward of the mysteries of Christ. Now look at back to 1 Corinthians 4.2. He says this, in this case, what's the case? The case of a steward giving out the resources God supplied through his word to be given to his church, okay? In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. So, again, he has to be doing this as his primary minister unto Christ in order to be found faithful. That's it, okay? So, if you're going to evaluate him, evaluate him on whether this characteristic of faithfulness to give out the word is in his life. You should be coming and getting the word and not him, Okay? If you're walking out and you're just getting the person and you're not getting the word, then he's messing it up or you're not listening carefully enough. And in the respect, you should always watch out for sermons that are not, in some sense, exegetical expository. Okay? Let's just call it what it is. All right? You should watch out for sermons that are not exegetical expository. Why? And by that I mean just avoid sermons that are not helping you understand what the words mean and what the context is. Because that's faithfulness. Okay? Because if you're not getting those things, you're not getting it in the way that God intended it to be used. Are there some instances where topical sermons are important? Yes, as long as you're taking a passage and breaking it apart and helping people understand what the words mean and then making application, yes. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, he said this, uh, Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling your own thoughts. Accurately putting out what you really want to talk about. Accurately handling the word of truth. In order for a pastor to fulfill what Paul told Timothy to do, and for a pastor to present himself approved to God with no shame, he's going to have to be diligent to accurately handle the word of truth. And mark this, beloved, he'll never handle it accurately without studying. Ever. Okay? But he sure can twist it around and make it say what he wants to talk about any old time he wants. A well-known speaker a number of years ago in Liberty Convocation, when he was speaking on the keys to being used by God, was teaching out of Exodus chapter 7, verse 9. And here's what he said. This is the passage. When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Work a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take off your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, then become a servant. The point, one of the keys to being useful by God is throw down your rod and get the snake out of it. What? Throw down your rod and get the snake out of it. That's key, it's key for you to be used by God. Was that the point of that passage? Another one. Again, and I'm not blaming liberty. I mean, they can't help it if somebody lays an egg up there on the stage. Job 16, 12. This is a message entitled, The Sin of Job. Now, as soon as I heard the message title, I'm having a problem with it. Are you? You should be. Why? Well, because several times in Job, it says that Job was a man who had, didn't sin. He wasn't under an examination from heaven because he sinned. 
He was, making, he was proving a heavenly point to Satan, and God picked Job to do it. But here's the sin of Job. Job 16, 12. I was at ease, but he shattered me. He has grasped me by the neck and shaken me to pieces. He has also set me up as his target. Now, that's just Job. I'm talking about his, the reality of his life at that point. And the sin was, he was at ease in Zion. He's supposed to be witnessing. He wasn't. He's kicking back in his easy chair or whatever. I don't know. Watching football on, on you know, Sunday night. I, I'm not sure. But that was the point. Is that the point of that passage? What, particularly, God's words about Job in Job 1.1 says, There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. That sounds like there wasn't a problem with Job's life, doesn't it to you? And then after that whole proving the heavenly point thing that came uh, there right after Job 1-2, and Satan's like, you know, nobody worships you, and the Lord says, have you looked at Job? And he's like, yeah, well, you just protect him, and so he worships you. So the Lord said, hey, take everything that he has. And after that's all done, okay, everything's happened. Job's lost his family and all of that stuff. And then uh, Job, is, his comments are recorded for us. Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell to the ground, and worshipped. Verse 21, he said, naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Uh, though through all this, and this is God's commentary then on Job, through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Okay, so, and I'm going to give you a few other examples, and they're going to be very modern, and you'll probably recognize them right away. The faithful pastor, though, is not to twist the word around and make it say what he wants it to say, and, make, and talk about what you want to talk about, okay? That's, that's the standard. He's the underservant, he's the galley slave uh, of Christ, he is the, uh, the house slave that gives out the resources, and you can measure whether or not he's doing what he's supposed to do by how faithful he sticks to what the Word of God says, and how much time do you spend in it? Is he giving it out the way God intended? Speaking of that, uh, during a Valentine's Day special episode of Super Bowl Sunday on Oprah Winfrey Network, I'm sure you turn right there as soon as you get home, you know. Oprah Winfrey asked her spiritual advisor, who is it? Rob Bell, that's right. All right, we'll give him more, a few more, a little bit of airtime. If she, if he thought churches were close to accepting homosexuality and same-sex marriage, he answers, "Quote: We're moments away from the church accepting it." End quote. And that Christians needed to stop relying on its holy text as a basis for opposing homosexuality. Here's the quote. I think culture is already there, and the church will continue to be even more irrelevant when it quotes letters from 2,000 years ago as their best defense, when you have in front of you flesh and blood people who are your brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and co-workers and neighbors, and they love each other and just want to go through life with someone, end quote. That's, of course, from his wonderful book, The Zimzum of Love, which followed up another equally wonderful book, and I say this all, of course, sarcastically, Love Wins, which dismissed the whole idea of hell as the final destination of the unredeemed. See, we have them in modern day, too, okay? The faithful pastor is not to twist the word and, and around and make it say what he wants it to say, but it's to give it as God intended it to be given. And that means the only legitimate way to teach is to truly know what the text means. So if you're not receiving that, then you're not receiving it like the Lord intended, okay? And it's so important. So the minister is Christ's underroar. He's a steward, and that's no big thing. Just a servant, and all servants, uh, and all stewards were servants, He's a galley slave. He doesn't deserve any glory. He just deserves discipline if he doesn't do what he's told from the Lord. Okay? It's the same thing spoken by Paul in 2 Corinthians 2.17. It's a great word here. This is what happens a lot. If you watch, especially in the section of, of DirecTV that has all the, um, 
religious ones on there. For we're not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Capel uo, peddling, present active participle. So it's describing the subject, the pastor, who is doing the opposite of being a faithful steward of the mysteries of God. We're not this, he says. New Testament times it described an innkeeper. It was a word for a petty retailer, especially of wine. It was someone that would apply to those who were a retailer of wine, a huckster. In contrast to a merchant, emporos, he doesn't use that word. It's a huckster, he says. We're not that. Okay? They get gain, of course, by dealing in anything, and here it's a false gospel. Here it's a prosperity gospel. Here it's a Bible without any of the uncomfortable parts, the Joel Osteen Bible. Here it is the Bible without hell or judgment or depravity. That's the Rob Bell Bible. And guess what? That Bible is in high demand, and it will sell big time in the culture. Okay? So Paul says again in 2 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2, you can see this uh, by this next letter. This is an important issue. He's going to come back to it. He says this, Therefore, since we have this ministry, we have, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness, or here it is, or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. By the manifestation of truth. What is the truth? It's the word of God. If you're a faithful house slave, you're going to be giving out those mysteries regularly. You're going to be telling what the words mean and why, uh, why that context is correct and helping people understand the passage as it was first understood. That's the faithfulness that is the way that you regard those who minister. But a guy who tries to make the word say what he wants it to say, or he reads a verse, and this is very popular, and then says what he wanted to say anyway, and he never consults the verse again. So if the verse had a cold, and he was interacting with it, he never would have got it because he wasn't around it face to face long enough. Okay? The guy who pastors that way is a peddler. Okay? adulterating the word of God. The guy who pastors that way is not a trustworthy steward. And God wants, out of all of his ministers, is that they be trustworthy. What does trustworthy mean? It just means doing what God said to do. And what did God say to do? Dispense the mysteries. Simple. That's what he's supposed to do. Now look at verse 3. Back at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. You just have a few more minutes and, and more than a few more minutes of sermon, so I'm going to talk fast, all right? Now, We've not, we've not only seen the distinguishing marks that properly evaluate a minister, we've also seen the characteristic, and that is the faithfulness to do those things, okay? A trustworthiness that relates to how to perform those distinguishing marks. And, and we're going to see now the outlook of a minister, okay, his, or his personal attitude, all right? Now look at verse 3. But to me, Paul says, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. Let's pause right there. Now here's the outlook, okay? Here's the outlook of a minister. And I'm sure this didn't sit well with the church of Corinth. It doesn't sit well with any church, okay? But Paul knew how they were evaluating he, Paulus, and Paul, and Peter. Human wisdom, fleshliness, random uh, types of evaluations that were just whatever uh, appealed to them, okay? So, understand Paul. He's not above being evaluated. He's just taking to task human evaluation. In other words, Paul says, if you're going to evaluate me, then it has to be He's an underrower of Christ, he's a steward of the word of God, and he's faithful to do those things. So that's why he says, it's a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. 
In other words, if you're going to do it with human wisdom and immature fleshliness, then it's a very small thing. Anacrino, examined. It has to do with a, cro with a cross-examination by someone. It certainly has to do with their evaluation of Paul. But he's been clear about that all along, that that evaluation is incorrect. That was the whole point of the passage. And so it appears to have an application as it relates to Paul's attitude about their cross-examination. Okay? Now, here's, what, here's the issue. Okay? In other words, Paul's using himself as an example of how ministers should think about what people think. Okay? That's the point. What ministers should think about what people think. All right? Because every minister has to fight that personal battle. Everybody. Whether it's negative or positive. The human side wants to hear, wow, you're terrific. Okay? And we don't want to hear, wow, you are a second-rate pastor. But the issue really is, when it comes right down to it, according to Paul, it shouldn't matter what's said. And here's the thing. When you can get over either of those things as a pastor, according to Paul, you're where you need to be. Whether it's positive or negative. And we constantly need God's help to get to the place of maturity where we who are in the ministry can look and say, I really don't care what people think. And Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, in fact, I don't even examine myself. Now, catch what Paul's emphasis is now that you've got the sense of it, okay? Pastors are really good at building up their own ego. And they're also good at negative evaluation of themselves. And my wife's not here, and you can ask her. That's why I no longer take Mondays off. Because if I was just going to, and according to her, if I'm just going to be miserable on Monday, I might as well be at the office and just take off Friday. And every pastor who's ever pastored understands what it's like to crash on Monday, okay? Because we're really good at, at, at tearing ourselves down. And Paul says that the minister has to be free of the controlling influences of what other people think, both positive and negative, and what he thinks, both positive and negative. That has to be his outlook, and that's not easy to come by. And then he says this, for verse 4, For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. And Paul says, I've reached a place where I don't let you examine me because your standards are too low. And I don't let me judge me because my standards are just as low as yours. I'm just as corrupt as you are. And we're a bunch of sinners saved by grace, and we really stink at real evaluation. And we're really biased in our own favor. And then Paul gives them the guidelines, and he says this, But the one who examines me is the Lord. What's the outlook of a minister of God, then, according to Paul? It isn't human opinion that governs what I do. It isn't my opinion that governs what I do. The only one who can really determine is God. Now, does that mean you just do whatever you want? No. You're a galley slave and a steward of the household of the mysteries of God. You don't get to pick and do what you want. Those are the things you do, and you're evaluated on whether or not you're faithful to do that. Okay? So Paul just kind of wraps the whole thing up and says, listen, the only one who can truly determine what I'm doing and whether it's good or not is God. He's the one I serve. I'm the under rower, the galley sleeve of Christ. I'm a steward of the mysteries of God. And to that end, I relay those things well. And to the end that I consistently do that as I bring it to you to the table as it came out of the kitchen, so I serve them. To that end, he says, I'll be judged. Not on whether what you think uh, about me, whether I'm great or not great, or whether what I think about me, whether it was great or not great. So who do I serve? Just a different perspective from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Be diligent, and we go back to this again, to present yourselves approved to God as a workman 
who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Now, I've broken that passage down for you, and you understand it's making a straight cut, accurately handling the word of God. That's cutting it in a way that when you put it all back together, it all fits, and you're not jamming it in, okay? Like our kids do with our puzzles when we work on them over Christmas, right? They find the spot that looks kind of like it, and then pow, right? Not that way, okay? You make a cut, you make a straight cut, it fits back in. That's the thing. But you be diligent to present yourselves approved to God. Who do I serve? The Lord. Be diligent to present yourselves approved. Paul goes through the same priorities with this young pastor, Timothy. Why do I handle it carefully? 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. That's why I handle it carefully, because it's made to equip for every good work. What's my job? 1 Timothy 4, 13 through 16. Different perspective now. Paul's given it to Timothy, but the same exact idea. Until I come, what are you supposed to do? What am I supposed to do, Paul, until you come? Well, Timothy, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Why? Because that's my stewardship. Because that's what I'm supposed to do. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through the prophetic utterance and with the laying on of hands of the presbytery. In other words, there's this whole process that goes into the whole elder thing. Verse 15, take pains with these things, be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. Why, Paul? Because that's being found faithful, and that's what God asks, right? For as you do this, you'll ensure salvation both for yourself and those who hear you. Simple. Same exact, same exact understanding, isn't it? He's telling Timothy the same thing he's telling the Corinthians, except he wants to them to evaluate him this way. He's telling Timothy, listen, this is what you do. Give attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in those things. Take pains with them. Be absorbed in them. Then Paul finishes up 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Understand this evaluation game based on human wisdom and immature fleshliness isn't the right way to do it. Regard us, he says in this way, but ultimately, as it relates to the appraisal of, of Paul, Apollos, Peter, every other minister, here's the appraisal, last one, okay? Every other person who ministers, along with your ministry as well, because we know that it's wider than just, uh, as we get to this point, it's wider than just those who serve in the ministry. Because we saw the judgment seat of Christ takes in every believer, and we looked at that already. Therefore, he says, do not go on passing judgment before the time. So he alone is making the evaluations. If you're going to play the game, do it right. But Paul says, ultimately, it doesn't matter what you think about your spiritual life or about my ministry. Paul says, God's not appraising my ministry, catch this, according to the little snapshot you have of my life. Okay? And he's not going to evaluate my life based on the world standards. How many people did I baptize? How big were the churches I pastored? How many letters were after my name? How many books did I write? How many people spoke highly of me? Or how many people I visited or counseled or how long my work week was? No, none of those things. Those judgments are passing judgment before the time in the snapshot that you have, Paul says. Paul gave the standard. But even judging those things, we're told to, middle of verse 5, wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. So here's the thing. Not nearly as so much as what we did as what our motives were. One word, why? 
Well, why did Paul, Apollos, Peter, every other minister, every other believer do what they did? That's the thing. As the Lord looks at it. He wants faithfulness. He wants to be found, uh, those who are in ministry, to be found faithful, to give out uh, those, uh, the, the, the word and all of its, its complete word of God. He wants that. But ultimately, he is going to bring to light those things hidden in darkness to close the motives of men's hearts. So why did you do it? Why did I do it? Those are the things that ultimately the Lord will look at. All the things we can't see, that humans can't know, are going to be opened by God, and he can know them, and he'll manifest motives, and on that basis, men will be praised. And every servant of God we saw is going to be praised to some extent, because in Christ there's no condemnation, right? So after that judgment seat of Christ, there's going to be some praise coming to each person, perhaps a loss of most of the work, or some of the work, or hardly any of the work, but some praise will come. But as to who gains the greatest praise, who gains the greatest reward, only God can make that judgment because he alone knows all the motives connected to it. And so what you need to do in your heart when you serve according to his guidelines is ask the reason why. Why am I doing this? That's what I have to ask myself. Why am I doing what I do? Why am I taking the word of God and breaking it up and giving it out? Why? I understand what I'm supposed to do. It's simple. I understand what my position is. A galley slave of Christ, a servant who gives out the mysteries of Christ. I understand that. And those of you who minister, you understand that's your job. And to the extent that you do that, taking the word and breaking it down faithfully, then you're a steward who's faithful. But ultimately, the Lord looks at all the hidden things. Why did you do it? Okay? He's given you some guidelines. He's given me some guidelines. But the big question is, are you doing it for God's glory or for yours? And only the Lord will know really the answer to that question. And when he's all through answering it, whatever is gold, silver, costly stone that has survived the purifying fire of his evaluation, you get the last part of verse 5, see? Then each man's praise will come to him from God. Paul says, don't play the evaluation game of those who minister to you unless you realize that there's a criteria to use and it's not subjective. Realize at the end of chapter 3 that all ministers are yours, Paul says. And that you're Christ, and Christ is God's, and they are Christ's slaves, and they're stewards and household managers of the resources of the Word of God. All faithfulness is determined by how well they do that. But in the grand scheme of things, you don't know the full truth about them. They don't know the full truth about them, because you don't know their motives, and it's not any clearer to them than it is to you when you evaluate your own motives. Because we're so good at overestimating our own worth. You're a steward of your spiritual gifts and of the gospel. I'm a steward, and God wants faithfulness. And that's the way evaluation should occur. As a personal note to what Paul has said here, I will say this. I appreciate when you say you were blessed. Don't get me wrong. And I appreciate when you say you weren't. And in that last statement, I appreciate when my own conscience disagrees with you on that. But my real longing is that at the end of my life, as we see Jesus' parable in Matthew 25, verse 23, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. Enter into the joy of your master. My real longing is this, not whether or not you say you liked it, uh, whether, whether my conscience disagrees when you said you didn't like it or whatever. My real longing is for my master to look at me personally, because that's the whole idea there, and say, 
that. Wouldn't you like to hear that? Wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't that be a relief? <laughs> the back of your mind a little bit. You'd like it to be there, right? Then be obedient and be faithful. Have untainted motives in your ministry, just like I have to in my own ministry. Let's bow to word of prayer. Father, we thank you today for time in your word. We thank you for an opportunity to read these things, some easy, some hard, some preventative, some curative, no doubt. Thank you for the benefit it was to my own heart in the study, and even an extra week to think through it and to ponder these things and to bring them to you in prayer. I'm grateful for all of that. Father, I pray, as Paul's desire for the church in Corinth was to be unified, that our church and every other church that names your name be unified under one job. And I pray, Father, that uh, we'll be careful to examine closely our own motives and the hidden things that you see and not be deceived by our own evaluation of ourselves that we might be found as slaves that have done a good job. House stewards that have taken care of using our spiritual gifts, perhaps, as a tender of Berean, teaching the manifold mysteries of God as those who lead in eldership. Whatever it is, Father, I pray that those things, in those things, we be found faithful, that we pray for one another, that we lift up uh, one another. We thank you for the blessing of fellowship, how we missed it last week. The joy of being together, singing together, praying together, giving, all the things that really make us feel fulfilled. We're grateful for a break in the weather where we could meet today. Thank you for the fellowship here, for the many who serve so faithfully, for the uh, half a dozen or so who are downstairs right now serving and ministering to our children and the least of us. And Lord, we pray that you encourage them. Thank you for their faithfulness. And for those who taught at Sunday school and who used their spiritual gifts and plugged in, Lord, we're so grateful. And for those who still are, he are here but haven't plugged in, I pray you give them understanding about where they can be used. Prompt them to plug in, Father. They may be found good stewards of manifold grace that comes from you. For this time of the word, we give you praise. For the time of giving, for the time of prayer, for the time of worship and music, we give you praise. We pray that you'll bring us back together tonight. Once again, that we might be encouraged in the book of Joshua, that you might uh, empower John as he brings us a message, that we might come away understanding more about your nature and how you deal with people. We thank you for the blessing that that evening is and the worship and the fellowship that go on in the testimony these things we give you praise, a small sampling perhaps of what heaven will be like with so many other wonderful things and people. And as we think about that, we think about the Mills family. We thank you that Earl's with you. To those who knew him, there's no doubt. He loved you. He knew you as a savior for a long time. Thank you for the blessing he was to each of us. And I pray comfort to that family this week, and encouragement, and peace. So, Father, for all these things, we give you praise. We long to see your son, 
It's him who deserves all honor, glory, praise, dominion, and power belong to him. We pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.